The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. This past Tuesday, uh, our presbytery, which is made up by the churches of Wisconsin, has a committee called the Mission in North America Committee, in which we talk about church planting in Wisconsin and beyond. And uh, I'm not a part of the committee, but I was, I was asked to be an advisor for the committee. Well, they had a meeting this past Tuesday down in Milwaukee, and a few weeks ago, two of my friends asked me, they said, would you come to this meeting in Milwaukee, this Mission to North America committee meeting? And I really had to think about it. They were pretty encouraging, and you should come to this, you should be at this, it would be helpful to have you there. But I also knew it was going to be a really, really busy week. And so finally, after a third encouragement, I decided to go down and go to this meeting. Well, as this week approached, my calendar filled up even more. People who needed to meet this week with me, uh, emergency basis type things. And so, um, so I got to Tuesday morning, and I woke up early, and I had a headache. I was tired, and I thought, I just do not want to go to this meeting. I have so much to do. Um, I know that this is going to take all day. I won't get home till 5 p.m. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, two drive each way because I have to pick up people on the way. And I thought, you know, I really just want to cancel out of this, but um, I want to be a man of my word, and so I'm going to go. So I texted a friend, and I said, would you just pray for me? I'm feeling overwhelmed, you know, with the amount of work I have, and I can feel my heart getting, you know, angry and bitter. And so I'm driving two and a half hours down to Milwaukee, pick up my friends in Appleton, and we head down, and I'm praying, Lord, help me, give me a positive heart, give me a good heart. We get down to the meeting, and uh, we pull in just in time for the meeting. And I get some coffee, and I sit down, and we pray, and they tell us the agenda. And then they say, Dan, I'm sorry, but you cannot be a part of this meeting. You are not a part of the committee, and you're going to have to leave. To which I said, why did I even come? And they said, well, we would like for you to join us for lunch to interview someone, which I was like, I don't even care. But... um, (laughs) So I I picked up my belongings and I went to another place in the church and I started to try to work on the sermon, but I was just so angry. I was fuming. I was so mad. They had stolen a day out of my life. And I knew what this would cost me. This would cost me time with my kids, time with my family. Uh, My whole Saturday would be filled up with sermon prep, which it was. I knew it would cost me a lot to go to this, but because these friends encouraged me, I went down and then I get down there and they say, sorry, you can't be here. And so I was just so angry. I was so mad because they stole a day out of my life. This day was just a complete waste. But nonetheless, I tried to get some work done while they were meeting, and I turned to work on my sermon. And it's Genesis 45, which you may or may not know, is the story about how Joseph forgives his brothers. And now I'm mad at three people. I'm mad at the people who encouraged me to come, and I'm mad at God for putting this text in front of me on the very day that I'm so angry and so frustrated that people stole a day of my life. If you would open up to Genesis chapter 45, if you are in the Red Bible, I believe it's on page 38, and the Children's Bible is page 76. As you look at this passage, Joseph didn't have a day stolen from his life. He didn't have... 10 days stolen from his life. Joseph had 20 years stolen from his life, from the part of life that many of us consider the prime of life. From 17 to 37, those years were gone because his brothers were bitter and angry and sold him into slavery. For 13 of those years, he was either in prison 
or he was enslaved. And then for seven years, from age 30 to 37, Joseph was put in charge of Egypt, and he was in charge of gathering supplies because he knew that there was a famine coming. At the age of 37, 20 years after his brother sold him into slavery, his brothers are hungry because of the famine. And they come to Joseph. They don't recognize him because he has Egyptian garb on. He's not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Egyptian. He has an interpreter. And they come to ask him for food. And I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, I would say payback time, right? I've been waiting 20 years. They are going to go in jail for 13 years, just like I did. Or they're going to be servants for 13 years, just as I was. At the very least, I would say tough cookies. Go get your own food, right? But Joseph doesn't respond that way. Joseph responds in a loving way, in a gracious way, showing that he has forgiven his brothers. He's trying to trust his brothers, so he gives them tests. The last test is the test of the silver cup, which we talked about last week. He places a silver cup in Benjamin's sack, arrests him, says that he's going to enslave him, and he waits to see the response of the brothers. The brothers come, and they plea for Benjamin. They plea for mercy for Benjamin. And then Judah steps up, and Judah gives one of the most beautiful speeches in all of Scripture, and he says, I want to pay the penalty for Benjamin's sin. I want to be enslaved instead of him. I want to substitute my life for his. Joseph is overwhelmed by what has happened in his brother's heart, that they have now become faithful to their family, that they have become faithful to God. And that's where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 45. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 15, and then we'll read 16 through 28 later. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed, horrified at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, who, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, And go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty." And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. 
You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Let's pray. God, as we come to this text, we've confessed earlier, Lord, that there, is, there are people in our lives that are hard to forgive, God. There is reconciliation that we have not pursued, God. And maybe we have tucked it away in the corner and tried not to think about it or talk about it, and yet it's ruining our life. God, we pray that as we look at this passage, that you would, that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves and with you on those that, who have hurt us, those who we have not fully forgiven, and give us the grace to do so, that we might be reconciled to them. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm guessing for every one of you, there is someone in your life that is hard to forgive. It could be an ex-spouse who has treated you and continues to treat you unfairly, maybe even slanders your name to the kids. Maybe it is a present spouse who keeps saying hurtful words, and they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. It could be an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend who just threw you away like dental floss when they were done with you. Maybe an adult who has abused you as a child or an acquaintance who has embarrassed you. Maybe a parent or sibling that has undercut you. Maybe even a pastor or an elder or a spiritual advisor has acted in ungodly ways from your perspective. Maybe you even have trouble forgiving yourself. You know that God has forgiven you, but you can't seem to forgive yourself. Have I heard it nerve, hit a nerve yet with you? Is there someone in your life that is very, very difficult to forgive? Someone who has hurt you so deeply? Who are you having trouble forgiving? Today we are going to look at the recipe of reconciliation. We're going to look at what it would mean to pursue a reconciled relationship with this person. As we look at the life of Joseph, we see different elements, different ingredients to reconciliation. And so we're going to look through and see this recipe of reconciliation. It starts, we see, with forgiveness. As I mentioned earlier, Joseph, I believe, forgave his brothers a long time ago. It only takes one person to forgive. It takes two to be reconciled, as you will see, but only one person to forgive. And Joseph has forgiven his brothers. But I want to ask, why should we forgive? Why should we forgive? Why not just keep the anger, keep the bitterness, keep the unforgiveness? Why should we forgive? And I have three reasons here. First is this. God commands that we should forgive. Colossians 3.13 simply says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There is no loopholes. It is straightforward. There are no exceptions. There are no extenuating circumstances. God says you must forgive as God has forgiven you. The second reason is for personal freedom. You probably heard this quote from me a hundred times, but I will share it with you again. Unforgiveness is the poison you drink hoping the other person dies. I've sat across the table from many, many people who tell me about how angry they are at their past spouse or their friend or whoever it might be. And you can tell the one that is tormented is not the one that they're angry with. It's the one who has unforgiveness in their hearts. 
So it gives personal freedom. And the third reason is reconciliation. Freedom, sorry, forgiveness is the first step to reconciliation. God has called us to forgive that we might pursue reconciliation. Reconciliation may or may not be possible, but is the first step towards reconciliation. So why should we forgive? Because God commands it, because it gives us freedom, and because it allows for reconciliation. But how can we forgive? I talk to many people who say, you know, I really want to forgive this person. I, I do, but I just, I can't do it. It is so hard to do. This is Quite possibly the hardest command that God gives to us, isn't it? To forgive those who have hurt us deeply. And so how can I forgive this person? Well, first is by experiencing God's forgiveness. This comes from Matthew 18. Jason talked about it earlier in our confession of sin, about the story, the parable of the unforgiving servant. The king threw him into jail and called him a wicked servant because even though he had experienced the forgiveness of the king, he was not willing to grant forgiveness to his fellow servant. You see, the way that we can grant forgiveness to one another is to the degree which we have experienced the forgiveness of God. And so as you have experienced the forgiveness of God, the, the greatness of it, we can now extend forgiveness to others. And so one way, one motivation that we can forgive others is by experiencing God's forgiveness for us. But that's not what Joseph says. That's not how Joseph had the power to forgive his brothers. Like I said, I lost one day. Joseph lost 20 years. How was he able to forgive? And the second way is this, by dwelling on God's purposes and not the offenders. We're going to dwell on this for quite a while. Like I said, Joseph had forgiven them. Joseph had tested them to see if they were trustworthy. But now we see how he was able to forgive them. This comes right after Joseph reveals his identity. Look with me in verse 5. Joseph says, And now do not be distressed. They were in stunned silence. They couldn't talk. Or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Joseph is not denying the wickedness. He's not denying the evil. He's not denying that they had sinned against him greatly. But he chooses to look at it from God's perspective. He says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph sees the purpose of his suffering. He sees that God has a purpose in his suffering. That God has used it to save the lives of thousands of people. That's one of the purposes he sees, that God had sold him into slavery, that he might save the lives of thousands. But it goes on. Verse 6, he says, For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which you will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. But they did send him there. No, it was God. You see here two more purposes that Joseph picks up on as to why God would send him to Egypt. One was to preserve a remnant. Last series in Genesis, it was called Remnant of a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, God proclaims the gospel right after the fall. He tells Eve, I will bear you a child. From your seed will come one who will defeat the evil one, who will crush his head. And throughout the story of Genesis, we see that God preserves that remnant. He preserves that line. There's great wickedness in the earth, but God saves Noah to preserve that remnant. 
We see Abraham marries Sarai, and, and, and she's barren. And so barrenness jeopardizes this promise of God to send a seed that will come and crush Satan's head. And yet God gives Sarah a child in her old age. We see it's, it's, it's jeopardized through other wickedness, and yet God continues to preserve it. And now it is jeopardized by famine. And God is going to provide that this remnant might continue through Joseph by providing food for the family, for his family, but also for Judah, who Christ will come through. And so we see one of the purposes is to save the lives of thousands. Secondly, to preserve a remnant. And thirdly, Joseph sees that God is using this to keep a nation alive. Joseph says, he says that God has sent him here to keep alive for you many survivors. Again, in Genesis 12 and 15, God promises Abraham, he says, from you will come a nation. From you will come many, many people. Now that is jeopardized by the famine. But what we see is that God sends Joseph ahead of them to prepare the way so that he might provide food that this group, Israel, this small family, might become a great nation just as God had promised. And it is indeed in Egypt that they multiply greatly and they become a great nation. In fact, the next chapter in Genesis 46, God says to to Jacob this, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. So what we see is that Joseph does not ignore or minimize the brother's wickedness. But Joseph was able to look through the pain, look through the suffering, look through the wicked purposes of the brothers to see the purposes of God in his suffering. Let me give you this example. Many of you work out, whether it be you know, bench press, push-ups, pull-ups, burpees, flipping tires, things of that sorts. And when you work out, your muscles start to scream, don't they? They start to say, why are you doing this to me? It hurts. It is painful, right? Your lungs start to say, I, don't, I can't breathe like this. Stop running. But you push through the pain if all goes well. If you're like me, you might listen to the muscles. You might listen to lungs say, that's the last time I'm working out. But if you want to have success in continuing, whether it be a workout program or a diet or whatever it might be, you have to look through the pain to the greater purpose. You have to look through the pain and see how this will benefit you. You've heard the phrase, no pain, no gain. This is the reality that we have to look through the pain to see that there is indeed gain. Now, this is even more difficult on a relational level than it is on a physical level. But we have to look through the pain of whatever that sin is that someone has committed against us. We have to look through it to see how God is at work. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. And I'm sure that if Joseph was alive, he would say, this is my life verse. Romans 8, 28, Paul says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things, good things, bad things, simple things, complex things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We have to look through the pain and set our eyes on God's purposes in our suffering. Theologians explain this concept with a phrase, first cause and second cause. First cause of something that happens is God's cause, God's purpose. The second cause is man's cause and man's purposes. So in this particular situation, the second cause was Joseph's 
brother's jealousy. That was the reason he was sold into slavery. But the first cause, God's cause, was to save thousands of people, to preserve the remnant of a Savior, and to provide that Israel might become a great nation. And what Joseph does, Joseph, by the grace of God, is able to look through that second clause to the first cause. And through that, he can forgive his brothers. Let me read to you from commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, who puts it much better than I do. He says, by looking past secondary causes to God, who is the first cause, Joseph gained a stabilizing perspective on life and achieved a frame of mind out of which he was able to forgive and reassure his brothers. It is a perspective to be held by every Christian. He, being Joseph, was not saying that God is the author of evil. God is not. Rather, God is in charge even of the wicked designs and evil deeds of men so that his purposes are accomplished and not theirs. This means that tragedies are not accidents. Tragedies are not accidents because God is sovereignly in control of all things, good and bad. And he has a purpose for them. Now, sometimes God's purpose in our suffering is obvious. It was to Joseph, you know. Maybe you you break your leg, you end up at the hospital, you marry a woman, you have 15 kids, and you say, now I see why I broke my leg, because I can meet my wife and have these 15 kids, right? And you can see, okay, this is what God was doing in this. But many of the times you can't, right? I still have no idea why I went down to Milwaukee on Tuesday. No idea. I hope it wasn't just to give you a sermon illustration because you're not worth it. I mean, it was painful. (laughs) All right? Sorry. God thinks you're worth it. I'm a little bit different. I mean, it was hard. It was really painful because the rest of the week, I'm trying to make up and catch up. I'm missing. It was hard. But what I have to know, when I look at this passage, I have to trust that God has a purpose for me being in Milwaukee on Tuesday during the day. And I have no idea what that is. But when I don't know what that purpose is, I have to trust God at his word. I have to trust him when he says that he uses all these things for those who love him to work together for good. I have to trust his character, that God is a loving God. He is not inattentive. When I took that, when, when the, those people were saying, why don't you come with me? God wasn't paying attention somewhere else in the universe. And they said, oh, how'd this one slip by me? Right? This was foreordained by God. That for some reason, which I do not know, I had to go to Milwaukee on Tuesday. And from my perspective, waste a day. We have to trust his character, that he is good, that he is loving, that he's in control, that he has foreordained all things. And this allows us to forgive those who have hurt us because we can look through their purpose, their plan, their agenda, and trust that God has a greater one that was and is and will be accomplished every time. Let me read to you from one more commentator. Donald Gray Barnhouse writes this. He says, To see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive easily those who injure us. It does not incline us to condone their fault as if they were unconscious instruments impelled by him who made use of them. For they act as freely as if God had no part at all. But we can pity, forgive, and pray for them. 
as slaves to their own passions, enemies to their own welfare, and real, though unwittingly, benefactors to our souls. This is strongly exemplified in Joseph, for he saw the hand of God overruling the designs of his brothers. And from that consideration, he not only readily forgave them, but entreated them not to be grieved or angry with themselves. Since whatever had been their intentions, God had used their misdeeds to accomplish his own gracious purposes. So, the first ingredient to reconciliation is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is something that God commands us to grant to others. And we can do it by experiencing God's forgiveness in us, but also by trusting God's plan in our suffering. To trust that he is a good God, a loving God, that has a holy and worthy purpose for it. So forgiveness is needed. Then there is the second ingredient that we'll see here. And the second ingredient is trust. What we see through the life of Joseph, one of the things that that becomes apparent is that although Joseph has forgiven his brothers, he doesn't trust them yet, nor should he. The last time Joseph saw his brothers, 20 years earlier, they sold him into slavery. They hated him. They were angry with him. They wanted to eliminate him. And so Joseph sends them through these tests, and they prove themselves not to be perfect, but to be trustworthy, that they are now committed to family. They came to Benjamin's aid, Judah especially, in offering his own life for Benjamin's sake. They have shown that they are trustworthy in their family relationships. And so Joseph grows in his trust of them, that he can entrust his heart back to them. And we see trust in Joseph's life in the form of intimacy. You know, if if there is a dog and you know the dog, maybe it's your dog, you love the dog, you might go nose to nose with the dog and, you know, get really close, get really intimate. But if you don't know the dog, you don't trust the dog, you stay at a distance. That's what Joseph did. He stayed at a distance until he knew he could trust them, and then he comes close to them in the form of intimacy. Look at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Could you imagine this setting? You know, it'd be like the president sending out his guards and then them just hearing him cry like, like you know, Miss America that just won the crown. You know, like, ah, they can hear it throughout the palace. I wonder what the brothers had in mind. They probably thought, you know, this guy, he's a fruitcake. Like, he's a little bit off. Why is he sobbing? They have no idea yet. And then that fateful moment arrived, the climax of the whole story of Joseph. Verse 3, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph had now revealed his identity to those who had hurt him so deeply. He exposed himself. He entrusted himself to his brothers. I, I envision this kind of like someone who would be, you know, in a protective case with the, with the legal, you know, they're going to testify, so they change their name, they send to a different place. And for some reason, they, they gain so much trust in the one that had hurt them that they say, hey, here's my address, here's my new name, come visit me, right? They've hurt him deeply, but they have regained his trust. And now Joseph bears his heart 
and Joseph reveals his identity. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said again, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. If at first they did not believe it was Joseph, now they believed. Joseph draws them close that they can study his features. He shares with them their shared secret that they had sold him into slavery. Surely this was Joseph. But Joseph drew them closer just to affirm who he, more than just to affirm who he was. He drew them close to affirm his love for them. The intimacy that he wants with them. Look down in verse 14. It says, Then he, Joseph, fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he, Joseph, kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with them. What an interesting phrase, isn't it? He fell upon his neck. We don't use that term today. At least I don't. Maybe you do. What does it mean to fall upon another person's neck? Well, if you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus actually uses that same phrase. You are probably familiar with the story of the prodigal son. The son takes the birth money from his father, wishes him dead, runs away, spends all his money. He's at his wit's end. He's eating pig food, and he says, I have to go back to my dad. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be a slave. I don't know what he's going to do to me, but I'm going to die out here. And then we read this, Luke 15, 20. I'm going to read it from the King James Version. It says, And he arose, the the son, and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. This is a picture of great and glorious reconciliation. The father was reconciled with his son, something that he had been waiting for for years and years and years. Joseph was reconciling with his brothers. This was the most intimate reconciliation possible. Now we see through the scripture and in the life of Joseph this truth that we are to forgive quickly and trust slowly. We're to forgive quickly and trust slowly. In a broken relationship, trust never happens without forgiveness. Forgiveness we're commanded to do. But for there to be trust, we have to start with forgiveness. Trust shouldn't always be given. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But for there to be trust, first there has to be forgiveness. Joseph was quick to forgive his brothers, but slow to trust. He rolled out these three tests to see if he once again could trust his brothers. Forgiveness takes one party, trust takes two, as they rebuild trust within the relationship. A few months ago, a man with a very distinct voice named William called me, and he told me this story about how he was at the new community shelter and how he had his money stolen and how he was wanting to catch a bus to Walsall because he had a job there now, or Rhinelander, I think it was, and how he didn't get paid to the next day, and, but he had to pay for the hotel room that he was in. So I went over and I met with William and I said, and I knew, you know what, there's a pretty good chance that this is a lie, um, but I'm going to trust him and it's not a huge expense for me. So I investigated as much as I could and I said, that's fine, I will pay for, I will pay for the hotel room. Well, a couple months went by and I get a phone call <laughs> from a guy named William with the same distinct voice saying, hey, I'm really in trouble. You know, I I got kicked out of the shelter. My money was stolen. Same story, right? 
I let him finish. And by God's grace, I wasn't angry at the guy at all. I mean, that's only by the grace of God. I wasn't mad at all. I told him, I said, listen, William, I talked to you before. Repent and trust in Christ as your Savior. By the time I was done, the phone was hung up on the other end. You know, I forgave William. God, by God's grace, I was able to do that. Sometimes it's easier than others to forgive. But I wasn't going to trust him. I wasn't going to say, okay, here's some more money, right? That'd be foolish. If your kids start stealing candy from the candy jar, you forgive them, but you also move the candy jar, right? You don't trust them. You move it, right? And so we are called to forgive every time, but trust has to be earned. Trust has to be built, Many times people struggle to forgive. When I sit in marriage counseling, people struggle to forgive because they think if I forgive them, that means I will trust them. It is true that there needs to be a path forward to trust, but it is foolish to trust right away. It is for your good, for your protection that you would not trust too quickly, but it is also for the offender's good, that they would have accountability to grow in godliness. And so we are called to forgive quickly and trust slowly. There are two more ingredients for forgiveness. And I don't think I have enough time to do it. So I'm going to pause here. I'm going to pick it up next week. Chris, you get moved back a week. Are you going to be here? All right, good. If you're a community group, sorry. Figure something out. This is so important. This comes up time and time and time and time and time again. Like I said, I sat across from dozens and dozens and dozens of people that have been so hurt, so wounded. They're in so much pain because someone has hurt them, and yet they have failed forgive. They, they have trouble forgiving, and they have failed to pursue reconciliation. We see in this passage that the ingredients start with forgiveness to build trust. We're going to move forward, and we're going to see it's also to extend grace and to hope to have faith in something that, to be honest, is quite unbelievable. I'm going to end there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, that you have forgiven us a lifetime's worth of wage. God, I know there are people here who have been sexually assaulted. There are people here who uh, loved ones have been taken from them, God. There are people here who have endured Extreme wickedness, God. I pray today that you would give them the power to forgive, Lord. That they would remember how much you have forgiven them in Christ. But at the same time, they would be able to look past that second cause. Look past man's purposes, man's agendas. And look to the first cause. Look to your purposes, God. Knowing that there is a great purpose you have in this evil. They may not understand it. They may not get it. They may never see at this side of heaven why this sin has occurred. But they can trust that you are a good God. You are a loving God. And that you have a good purpose, even if we can't see it. Lord, it is so hard to forgive. We need your help. We pray that you would help us do so. In Christ's name, amen.